1990s Ireland saw the emergence of a criminal underworld unlike anything the country had witnessed before. Modern life was changing, the economy was growing and technology was advancing at an unprecedented pace. The widening economic gap amongst the general population would bring its problems for the more vulnerable in society, providing opportunity for would-be criminals to begin building their empires. While burglaries had traditionally made up the majority of a criminal's payday, the sale and supply of illegal narcotics would prove to be a more lucrative enterprise. An increasing demand for drugs in Ireland, particularly amongst drug addicts in Dublin's inner city, would provide a new marketplace. Budding drug barons, many of them who had already served prison sentences for other crimes, began to develop their supply chain, both nationally and internationally, smuggling in large quantities of drugs and using more sophisticated methods to stay hidden from the reach of the authorities. The Irish National Police Force, on Garda Síochána, would face fresh challenges, struggling with a lack of resources and experience in dealing with evolving criminals. Outdated legislation would not aid their fight. Ultimately, it would take the untimely murder of a young journalist to send a shockwave of grief, fear and outrage through the Irish people, which in turn would lead to reforms in the Irish legal system, the effects of which are still seen to this present day. In the 25th anniversary year of her death, we remember her story. Welcome to part one of a two-part episode of The Irish Crimes, Veronica Guerin, Murder of a Crime Journalist. Veronica Guerin, also affectionately known as Ronnie, was born on July 5th, 1958, to parents Christopher and Bernadette, and grew up on Brookwood Avenue in the Northside working-class suburb of Artane, situated roughly six kilometres from Dublin city centre. She was the second youngest of four siblings, growing up with two brothers and two sisters. Through childhood and into her teenage years, Veronica's personality was described by her brother Jimmy as bubbly, gregarious, having a great sense of humour and fun, always up to pranks and always up for a laugh. The same could be said of the company Veronica surrounded herself with. She was described in her youth as being a tomboy at heart, with a competitive nature. She had a preference for wearing jeans over dresses and could usually be found hanging out with the boys. She had a passion for all things sports, in particular football, which she played in her youth to international level, at one stage representing her country and gaining a cap for Ireland. A zealous fan of the international team, Veronica, in her adulthood, would travel to other countries to lend her support. At club level, she was a huge supporter of the English Premier League team Manchester United, one of the most successful teams of all time in England and Europe, and particularly successful in the 1990s. The Irish stick and ball game of camogie, or the female version of hurling, was also a sport Veronica enjoyed. Basketball too was of interest to Veronica, playing with the local team, the Colester Kittens, eventually earning herself a place on the national team. The determination and passion that Veronica exuded through her dedication to sport would be carried through into her work life. 
Once she completed her secondary school education, Veronica briefly worked for the Irish League of Credit Unions before moving on to her father's accountancy firm, Giran and Reed, situated on Gardner Street in the heart of Dublin city centre. There, she worked alongside her father Christopher and older brother Martin. When her father passed away in 1981, the accountancy firm was sold, concluding Veronica's two-year career in that particular field. The ending of this job would lead to Veronica's career shifting into politics. Veronica's political ideology was instilled in her from an early age. She was both nationalist and republican, believing in a 32-county united Ireland. From a young age, Veronica, along with her brother Jimmy, inherited their father's support for the political party Fianna Fáil. Fianna Fáil was one of the two main political parties in Ireland at the time, and still is, currently holding power in government today, and was described in the 90s as a conservative and nationalist party. Veronica was initially active with the OGRA, or youth branch, of the organisation. The main party's leadership was spearheaded by a man named Charles J. Hawhey, a dominant and later controversial figure in Irish politics. In the early 80s, he was the number one supported politician in the Guerin family's home village of Artain and was a figure who Veronica looked up to and unreservedly supported, working hard to ensure that he and his fellow party candidates were elected in the 1982 general election. Hawhey would eventually go on to be elected Taoiseach, or Ireland's version of a Prime Minister, in the late 1980s. Veronica's support for Hawhey was unwavering, even at times when voices within the political party itself did not back its leader. Her grassroots campaigning and efforts to garner support impressed Charlie himself, and in turn opened doors for Veronica with regard to future employment opportunities. Equally as important, it allowed Veronica the opportunity to establish a valuable network of influential contacts. After Veronica's spell in the accountancy firm came to an end, she was rewarded for her work on the ground in support of Charles Hawhey and the other North Dublin candidates in the election, and at the age of 24, was given a position on the board of the governing body of the National Institute of Higher Education, where she was regarded as having excelled, despite her young age and inexperience. Nora Owen, the Justice Minister between 94 and 97, described Veronica as vivacious and very friendly, and noted that Veronica became well known to those in political circles at the time, her role essentially being Charles Hawhey's book carrier. Her next role would be with the New Ireland Forum, where she was appointed in 1983. The New Ireland Forum was set up by Fine Gael, the other main political party in Ireland, and the main rival to Fianna Fáil at the time, and it was a cross-party committee tasked to further political solutions to the Northern Ireland issue and to report on its progress. Veronica's role was that of liaison between the parties. The New Ireland Forum was short-lived, and in May 1984, it published its report and the group was dissolved, at which point Veronica's contract with the Fianna Fáil party came to an end. A political career is not all Veronica would gain from her time working alongside the Hawhey family. It would be through the Hawhey's that she would go on to meet a man by the name of Graham Turley in 1982. Turley, who was best man at Charles Hawhey's son's wedding, 
would date Veronica for three years before they would go on to tie the knot in their own ceremony in 1985. In 1989, Veronica would give birth to what would be their only child, son Carl. After leaving politics in 1994, Veronica would turn her hand to a new venture in that same year and decided to set up a public relations company called Guerin Public Relations Limited. Although she gained some clients and work during this period, the business did not take off and the company was dissolved in 1992. In terms of education, information surrounding post-secondary school academic credentials appear to be somewhat conflicting. It would appear from our research that it is most likely that Veronica did not complete any professional accountancy exams in her time working in her father's accountancy practice, despite some claims indicating otherwise. What we do know is that she attended the Dublin Institute of Technology, or DIT as it is known locally, and undertook a one-year graduate programme in marketing management, commencing in 1987. She performed well, completing the course, earning grades that put her in the top five in her class. Veronica had gained considerable experience across the different fields of accountancy, politics and public relations, and would change gears once again. This time, she set her sights on journalism. This may have surprised some at first, as she had initially shown a dislike for journalists, as they had indicated through their reporting what she perceived to be a dislike of Charlie Hawhey. This would come to change. In her days of political employment, Guerin crossed paths with journalist Paddy Prendeville, Prendeville worked with the Sunday Business Post at the time and wrote about Fianna Fáil in a more forgiving light than some of his peers of that era. The two struck up a friendship, which stood to benefit them both. Prendeville would gain insight into the workings of Fianna Fáil, while she gained a contact in journalism who encouraged her to write. Veronica would embark on her new career path in 1990. She met with Damien Kybert, editor at the Sunday Business Post, and soon after began to do some freelance work for the paper. Although she had the raw talent, Veronica's writing skills needed polishing, a fact of which she was aware, but she was willing to put in the work and learn. One of the first stories Veronica wrote involved Aer Lingus Holidays, a subsidiary of Aer Lingus Airlines, which ran chartered tours to the Mediterranean and other destinations. The story involved Aer Lingus Holidays being granted a license to operate. In its application for the license, the company reported profits, when in reality it was a loss-making venture, covered up to ensure its marketplace dominance. Veronica's findings were handed over to Price Waterhouse, who investigated, and her discoveries were used in their report. Veronica felt it was a hot topic, and decided to make a documentary on it, with an initial green light given from the state broadcaster RTE to acquire and air it. However, given its controversy, RTE decided to pull it from their schedule, and Veronica gave it to Kybird to publish. The story ran in the Sunday Business Post, giving Guerin her first taste of mainstream business journalism. Although Veronica was new to the profession, her abilities and instincts would make her well-suited to the role. 
Her forensic skills would enable her to find anomalies where they existed, and her personable demeanor allowed individuals to warm to her and to trust her enough to share their information. On July 26, 1992, a Veronica Guerin story would make the front pages. This story involved Irish businessman Larry Goodman, who had become heavily indebted to the banks as a result of a volatile market in the Middle East due to the Gulf War. Travelling to Cyprus to investigate, Guerin discovered that 25 million of the company money was given to two men in Cyprus, where it was lodged and subsequently frozen in a bank account there. In 1993, Veronica began working for the Sunday Tribune, continuing her work as a freelance journalist. One of her most memorable stories to publish at her time with this newspaper involved an Irish bishop, Bishop Eamon Casey, who had been ushered out of Ireland after his affair with an American woman named Annie Murphy. Annie would subsequently give birth to their son, Peter Murphy, and this became public knowledge. In her pursuit of an exclusive scoop, Veronica flew to Ecuador to interview the bishop. Veronica held lengthy discussions with the disgraced bishop and using her charisma and charm, persuaded him into laying out his story firsthand. It turned into an interview which would take up 12 pages, running over a three-week period. Veronica's gamble paid dividends, as on Sunday, November 14, 1993, Veronica would turn into a front-page headlining reporter and a household name. Veronica Guerin's profile as a reporter was gaining momentum. The Bishop Casey article shone a spotlight on Veronica's instinct to identify a headline-grabbing story, but more than that, she was willing to go outside of what's considered standard journalistic practice in its pursuit. It was unconventional and old-fashioned, but it was working, and this fact was not going unnoticed in journalistic circles. Angus Fanning, editor of the Sunday Independent, sent a letter to Veronica and she would subsequently meet with him and the deputy editor. In 1994, spurred on by her old friend Paddy Prendeville, she joined the paper's roster. The Sunday Independent would provide the platform where Veronica could really hone her skills and where she would turn her attention to more serious matters of public importance. Not matters of business, but matters which threaten the fabric of society. Matters of crime. Unlike many of her peers, Veronica had no formal training in journalism, but she did not allow that fact to hinder her quest for newsworthy headlines. The forensic skills she had developed working in her father's accountancy practice, coupled with her experience working in the political scene, provided her with the tools to become a formidable force. Veronica was well-networked. She had laid that groundwork in her Fianna Fáil days. More so, she would use her engaging personality to her advantage to establish relationships with some dangerous people. The underworld she was about to discover was a new game in a different arena. Her pursuit of the truth would be a gamble with her safety and the safety of her family. It was a gamble she felt obligated to partake in. Stringent libel laws in Ireland would mean that journalists such as Veronica would have to be careful with what they published, and her workaround was to christen the criminals with monikers to avoid potential lawsuits. Let's take a look at the criminals in question.
Veronica's main informant was a man named John Trainer, christened by Veronica in her newspaper articles as The Coach. Born on February 2nd, 1948, Trainer grew up in South Inner City, Dublin, attending primary school but not secondary school. He was a first-generation criminal and earned his first conviction for larceny and housebreaking at the age of 13. He earned similar convictions for the next half-decade, spending a total of 19 months in prison in this period. At age 15, he would find employment as a seaman with Irish shipping and the B&I line. It would be here where he would meet future boss John Gilligan. John Gilligan would become a key crimeland boss and a central figure in the explosion of the drug trade. We will explore more on John Gilligan later. Trainer's legitimate employment included driving heavy goods vehicles and managing his father's greyhound track. He would marry a woman named Michelle Sexton in 1973 and they would go on to have four children. A young trainer would spend several spells in prison for various offences. In December 1977, he would receive his most serious conviction to date when he was jailed for possession of a firearm with intent to danger a life, as well as on firearms, larceny, assault and burglary charges. He received a sentence of five years imprisonment and another five years to run concurrently for a separate conviction for assault causing harm. Moving on from petty theft, fraud would become Trainer's main bread and butter for a time. If he was to be caught, a short spell in prison was all that could be expected, as the sentences for this type of crime were not as severe as those viewed as more serious. In 1981, the coach bought stolen checks and drafts from bank robberies committed by the Irish National Liberation Army, or INLA, a socialist paramilitary group set up during the Troubles in the North, and used kite men to cash them. Kite men were individuals that were in no way tied to the main criminals, but were sent to do their dirty work, so the main criminals would be protected and not get themselves caught. These men were mainly down and outs found in local bars who needed to make some quick cash. Trainer was also listed as a member of Sayre Era, a now defunct far-left political organization set up in 1931 by communist-leaning members of the IRA Irish Republican Army, which described itself as an organisation of workers and working farmers, but in reality was involved in criminal activity. Trainer would maintain links with paramilitary groups. His ability to move stolen goods was useful to them, while he knew that someday their loyalty could be useful to him. During the 90s, Trainer operated two car garages in Dublin, but the real money would come through illegal activities. He would earn his money through the operation of a brothel in Dublin and becoming involved in the sale and supply of drugs. John would become involved with narcotics through his connections in the criminal underworld. Initially, Trainer worked for Martin Cahill, aka The General. Trainer and Cahill's relationship stemmed back to their childhood, having grown up in the same neighbourhood, and they remained in contact, even when Trainer moved away. Their criminal association would be cemented when they both served time together in the late 70s, and a part of that time would see John Gilligan keeping them company. Once out of prison, the three, along with other criminals, took part in a cigarette raid on ADC wholesalers in County Kildare. In 1981, Trainer and Cahill would go on to buy a bar together down on the Dublin's Dockland, called the Jetfoil, 
which was bought and stocked from the proceeds of crime with the help of John Gilligan. Trainer would be the owner on paper, keeping the higher-profile Cahill away from the attention of the Gardaí, who frequently visited the premises in search of stolen goods or information. The criminal duo would go on to buy a dry-cleaning business on Anger Street, just south of Dublin city centre, which ran an upstairs massage parlour owned by a relation of Trainer's criminal associates. In 1983, the two associates planned out their most ambitious job so far. This time, the target was O'Connor's Jewellers on Harold's Cross, to the south side of the city. The gang entered through an unalarmed boiler house, and within 40 minutes, cleared a strongroom of its contents with a value to the tune of £1.5 million. At the time, they earned the honour of carrying off Ireland's largest robbery. Pulling off the heist was part one. Part two was turning it into cash. Trainer oversaw its movement from Ireland to London, where it was sold for a relatively small sum compared to its real-world value. While en route, some of the loot went missing. In retaliation for the suspected theft from the already paranoid Cahill, he ordered the man suspected of stealing the precious cargo to the floor and proceeded to have him tortured in a crucifixion-style manner. Surprisingly, even under such pain, the transporter did not confess, and Cal was satisfied the man was telling the truth. The gold would later resurface when dug up by a dog in Terranure, a suburb in South County Dublin. While the Gardaí were looking into the crime, both men would face heat from within gangland circles. As it happened, the provisional IRA were planning to rob the same business. They demanded a meeting with Cahill, where they demanded 50% of the haul. John Trainer accompanied him. Cahill refused, and the IRA retaliated with a threat of serious consequences. This was not a position the more diplomatic Trainer wanted to be in. The provisional IRA were a dangerous organisation to have on the wrong side, but Cahill would not budge. Tensions were at an all-time high, and the underworld itself was under threat of implosion. In early 1984, an organisation known as the Concerned Parents Against Drugs marched outside the homes of some known drug criminals, including Cal. Suspecting that the provisional IRA had something to do with this, Cal retaliated by forming his own group, called Concerned Criminals Action Committee, to march under CPAD. John Trainer would be involved in the march. This did not go down well with the provisional IRA, and they began to take more threatening action by kidnapping Tommy Gaffney, an associate and close friend of the generals. They were not going to stop there and tried to kidnap another associate called Martin Foley, or the Viper, as he was known. The latter was a botched job and the IRA released Gaffney with a message to say that they would not kidnap Cal but execute him instead. Trainer, fearing an all-out bloodbath, met with the provisional IRA in secret and put out the fire. The peace was restored. Trainer and Cal made money from burglaries, but fraud was another lucrative avenue that they did not fail to use as an opportunity for gain. The jet foil had served as a hotbed for suspicious characters and known criminals. It was becoming a liability. It attracted too much of the Gardaí's attention. Alleged threats were being made against the pub and its proprietor, and in May 1984, the pub was set ablaze. 
a claim was brought against Dublin Corporation and an argument about how the Gardaí had failed in their duty to protect the pub was argued. They sought compensation in the amount of £47,000 and although that was cut to £35,000, the award was made in their favour. Trainers' schemes were not just nationally based. On the international stage, Trainer had a part to play in the Great Norwegian Fishing Scandal. Alongside another criminal named John Byrne, a scam was concocted under the pretense of shipping dried fish to Nigeria from Norway. Three promissory notes were drawn up and endorsed, but two were stopped before they could be cashed. The first promissory note, for £3.6 million, was cashed, and the bank involved, Norwegian Tromso Sparebank, lost the amount, despite attempting to recover, due to inefficient evidence. In May 1986, a Cahill trainer joint effort would oversee the theft of 18 paintings from Sir Alfred Bates' collection at Rusborough House near Blessington in County Wicklow, the largest art theft in the history of the state at that time, and one of the biggest in Europe. The sale of such high-profile works would prove difficult for Cahill and those he did manage to offload were eventually tracked down by police in Belgium, England and Turkey. Loyalist paramilitaries bought some of the paintings from Cahill and those too were recovered in Turkey. With a value of 20 to 15 million on the regular market at that time, Cahill was estimated to have made close to a million pounds. Trainer was suspected of being involved in the offload of the paintings, along with John Gilligan. By this time, the Gardaí had begun focusing efforts on Trainer after the bait theft and a raid on a relation of Trainer's shop on Georgia Street in Dublin city centre saw a haul of £33,000 worth of counterfeit cigarettes. He was arrested, admitted responsibility and was subsequently released on bail. Meanwhile, a past crime caught up to haunt Trainer, and the fraud squad would place him under surveillance. A stolen check scheme, which he ran, was being examined, and the fraud squad managed to trace a stolen check, which was cashed to one of John's runners, a 25-year-old male who worked as a car salesman, cashing four checks totaling nearly £5,000. He was convicted and got nine months in prison. To add more woes to his plate, Gilligan and Cahill's relationship was starting to fray. Cahill, by his nature, a paranoid criminal, began to suspect Trainer of ripping him off. The Gardaí, in their investigation of the O'Connor's jeweler's job, were dealt a massive break when the wife of John Egan, the owner of the workshop used in the aftermath of the heist, walked into Sundrive Garda Station in January 1987 and reported her husband for his part in the crime. Egan himself was taken in and gave a statement of admission and in doing so implicated Trainer regarding threats made. Trainer, who had taken a bigger slice of the proceeds, more than what had been agreed upon, had made the general suspicious and angry. Cahill also suspected Trainer of shortchanging him with regards to their properties, as by this time they acquired another shop on Arbor Hill in addition to the shop they had purchased on Anger Street. Cal went searching for Trainer, but Trainer, sensing trouble from both the cops and his paranoid boss, decided to escape to England. In England, Trainer got to work. He began to establish and use criminal connections quickly. In 1990, Trainer, alongside two other criminal contacts, 
obtained stolen treasury bonds and planned to use them as collateral for an international holiday complex development mortgage for £100 million. After an initial £200,000 was drawn down, a tip to the London Police and Serious Fraud Office led to an investigation being started. The second drawdown was £1 million and while in progress, Trainer and the courier were both arrested. On October 18, 1991, the law caught up to John Trainer. The coach was sentenced to seven years in prison. From prison, John sought to repair his relationship with Cal. In 1992, the jet foil was sold and the shop on Arbor Hill that both Cal and Trainer owned was to be leased out. The proceeds of the jet foil sale was split 50-50 and the two repaired their relationship. Cahill even arranging to get money to Trainer's family while he was serving his sentence in England. In November 1992, as a reward for good behaviour, Trainer qualified for temporary home release and left High Point Prison, where he was serving his sentence. He did not return to the prison at the end of November when due. On legal advice, he was told he could not be extradited back to England and once again Trainer was free to roam his homeland. He immediately reconnected with Cahill, who at this stage had a diminished gang, most of them serving prison time. However, Trainer was not completely out of hot water in Ireland and had a charge outstanding against him. He offered up information to the Gardaí to bargain his way out of trouble. The detectives with whom he spoke were particularly interested in the return of a file stolen from the DPP's office in relation to the death of a priest, Father Malloy. Although the case was closed, with the accused being acquitted of manslaughter, the leaking of privileged case information was a cause of great concern and embarrassment to the Gardaí. Trainer arranged for the file to be handed over and the cigarette charges looming over Trainer were dropped due to the amount of time which had lapsed from the time the initial charge was made to that point. John, the coach trainer, was back in Ireland with a completely clean slate and was very much ready to get back to work. How exactly it came to be that Veronica Guerin crossed paths with John Trainer is unknown, although our research indicates that it was probable that Veronica likely approached him. Whatever the case, he would become a dependable source for her stories published in the Sunday Independent. Her relationship with John was mutually beneficial. Trainer provided Veronica with information on the operation of the drugs trade which fueled her articles, and Trainer, for his part, was able to manipulate Veronica's stories in a way that would either take the spotlight off of him or misdirect Veronica in a manner which would influence the course of Gardaí investigations. In other words, putting the spotlight onto someone else. The ringleader in Irish drug criminality during this era was a man called John Gilligan. Born on March 29, 1952, Gilligan was born into a large family in Grange Gorman, an area in Dublin's north inner city, and his family eventually were relocated out to Loch Con Road in Drum Finn, situated near the villages of Chapel Izzard and Ballyfermot in West Dublin. Gilligan was just 12 years old when he left the school system. His dad was a known thief, 
and John Jr. would follow in his father's footsteps. Like his dad, Gilligan joined the B&I line in 1966, at age 14. It would be here that John Trainer and John Gilligan would meet. Soon after, a young Gilligan would be charged with his first offence, and was convicted of larceny in 1967, having stolen a farmer's chickens. As this was his first offence, he did not serve time and was given the benefit of the Probation Act. In September 1976, John was caught and charged with an attempted robbery of a bookmaker's. In October 1976, John, who by now had a wife and two children, was convicted of larceny and sent to prison. In 1977, he was sentenced to 18 months for receiving stolen goods, 3 months for larceny, and 12 months for the attempt at robbing the bookies on Capel Street. John was making a name for himself. He was connected with many already established criminals, who were evolving from petty thieves to more dangerous criminals, in an Ireland where serious crime was not yet seen to be a major issue. Within a year, Gilligan was released from prison. In November 1978, Gilligan and his gang were involved in a robbery of a truckload of frozen bacon, where they used a couple's shed as a storage unit for the hall. The guardie found out, and the couple were brought in for questioning. Gilligan was identified as the perpetrator by the woman, charged, and was released on bail. He was not convicted. The woman withdrew her statement. This would not be the last time where a witness in connection with a Gilligan incident would withdraw their statement. A short time after, Gilligan was arrested on suspicion of armed robbery concerning the theft of almost £6,000, which took place at a bank branch belonging to Allied Irish Bank on the Nace Road in West Dublin. The Gardaí, too, failed to secure a conviction in this case. Gilligan was undeterred. His crime sprees would continue into the 80s and earned him the moniker Factory John, given his choice of target. In 1981, John was arrested and in March 1982, Gilligan received a 12-month prison sentence and was handed a 15-year driving ban for using his van to commit a crime and subsequently trying to steal it back when impounded by the Gardaí. His wife Geraldine would also come to have her own brush with the law as a result of her husband's escapades. She was charged with receiving stolen goods, goods that her husband and his gang had acquired in a factory raid. Geraldine, ironically, was working in a factory in Blanchardstown at the time and was trying to sell the Atari games to colleagues there, but one of the women she had sold a game to went to the police and gave a statement. On the strength of this, a deposition was held and John went to work in his usual manner, finding the snitch and shutting them up, through intimidation and threats. It worked. The woman's young son was threatened and, too frightened to continue, the woman withdrew her statement and the case collapsed. The police did alert the court to the intimidation which occurred, but nothing was done as a result. On St. Patrick's Day 1981, Gilligan and his gang stole a truck filled with colour televisions from an electrical engineering warehouse in Dublin. A large truck was used to back into the factory and the TVs were taken to Sligo to be sold by an experienced distributor. However, all did not go to plan and detectives were tipped off as to who was behind the operation. The distributor's home was searched and sets were recovered, along with the names of customers who had already bought some. A large number of the sets were seized, and a distributor confessed that it was John Gilligan who had supplied them. 
Despite the fact that the Guardi had Gilligan's name, the distributor was too afraid to testify and decided to take the rap himself. On January 6, 1982, an attack was carried out on Dr. James Donovan, the state's head of the Forensic Science Lab. Although not fatal, Dr. Donovan's legs were badly injured in the incident. The attack was carried out on the orders of the General Martin Cahill and an associate. The General and his associate were involved in an amusement arcade holdup and evidence left on the getaway motorbike which was used linked them to the crime. A large team was assembled to investigate using established special branches and detectives. While combing through gathered intel, a phone call to the station pointed to a suspicious white van and car situated in the area where Dr. Donovan was residing, a few days before the attack. The van was traced back to a security worker who worked in the Cookstown Industrial Estate. An appointed peace commissioner, the security man would have been highly regarded. However, it was soon discovered that he was associated with Gilligan and was an inside man involved in helping Gilligan's gang with their heists. The police would yet again fail to get their man. As was the trend, the security man was unwilling to testify and in doing so, sent himself down to prison instead. On January 2nd, 1986, Gilligan and his gang raided the Nilfisk warehouse in Tala and stole a large quantity of new vacuum cleaners. Felix McKenna, who had experience in dealing with Gilligan before, was on the investigation, and a surveillance operation was greenlit. It would not take long. In a matter of days, McKenna was tipped off about the location of the hall, and the search proved successful, and most of the vacuum cleaners were found in a warehouse in Clondalkin. The guardee would lie in wait for Gilligan and his men to appear, and sure enough, just over a week later, Gilligan returned to the warehouse and was arrested and charged with aggravated burglary and taken into custody. The burglaries did not stop and the gang continued, in the same month stealing over £100,000 worth of cattle drench from an industrial estate in Bluebell, Dublin. The police would catch two associates of Gilligan, George Mitchell and Gerard Hopkins, and both would be sentenced to five years in prison for the crime. Fast forward to July, and Gilligan was involved in the acquisition of video recorders from the same industrial estate. The Gardaí were beginning to close the net, and as a result of ongoing operations, found another lockup that the gang had been using. With the premises under surveillance, Gilligan and others would eventually show up and were arrested. The Gardaí would find an array of stolen goods from various heists around the city, including pharmaceuticals worth over £100,000, stolen from the Glaxo factory. Gilligan was charged with the Glaxo job and receiving stolen goods. An associate was also charged and pleaded guilty. He was subsequently subpoenaed to appear as state's witness against Gilligan, but suddenly disappeared. The looting continued. Gilligan, along with two others, decided to hit up Limerick train station, taking mailbags. They were all arrested, charged and released on bail in that September. A hit on the Rose Confectionery Factory would land Gilligan in further hot water. While loading up a truck with £80,000 worth of sweets, a security man had seen the gang at work and called the guards. John was arrested and charged. By this time, the Gardaí were catching up with the criminals as burglaries had begun to skyrocket around the country. Dublin was not the only destination for targeting. 
Enniscorthy in County Wexford was hit by Gilligan in an effort to obtain supplies, with another burglary in Athlone County Westmeath. The halls were taken back to Dublin and hidden in West Dublin. McKenna and his team found half of the stash, and the yard owner admitted that the loot was Gilligan's, and there were plans for him to return to get the remainder. The thieves came back. The police did not strike, but waited until they were further down the road before pouncing. Gilligan would eventually show up with an associate, Robert O'Connell, and they began to load up their van. Gilligan was arrested, again not on site but further down the road, allowing the criminals to further implicate themselves by transporting the goods. He was arrested, claimed to be only getting a lift from O'Connell, and was granted bail once again. Gilligan was relentless in his spate of theft and burglaries. Just three nights later, he was arrested along with O'Connell and one other, when caught stealing wood from Chadwick's builders, and again he was released on bail. Finally, Gilligan had to pay the price, and in May 1988 was sentenced to 18 months in prison for the Rose Confectionery warehouse theft, and a couple of months later was given four months for the Sandymount job. July 1989 would see Gilligan released, but he was facing charges for the Nilfisk case. Threatening calls were made to the Nilfisk headquarters, but the calls were reported to the Gardee, and Gilligan spent two months in custody. However, Gilligan's legal team prevailed and he was acquitted. Having been charged with receiving stolen goods, his team submitted that Gilligan, on evidence, stole the goods, and he could not be charged with receiving goods that he had stolen in the first place. The Director of Public Prosecutions was not happy. Gilligan had manipulated the system once more. It would be the Enniscorthy case that would cause upset to John Gilligan's reign of thievery. Gilligan's legal team argued at a pre-trial hearing that there wasn't enough evidence. The judge disagreed and Gilligan was sent to the Special Criminal Court. The owner of the yard, at this stage unsurprisingly, declined to identify John Gilligan as the man he claimed was the Mr Gilligan who visited him in the yard. While the court didn't find John guilty of burglary, they did find him guilty of receiving stolen goods and he was sentenced to four years in Port Leash's maximum security prison. Gilligan appealed but failed. In 1992, Gilligan attacked a policeman while inside, which earned him an additional six months incarcerated. In November 1993, Gilligan would be out and phase two of his criminal career was about to begin. With John Trainer now free and John Gilligan's release imminent, Trainer and Cahill began planning their new enterprise in the burgeoning narcotics market. First, they would need cash. A raid was planned on the National Irish Bank's cash centre located in Dublin city centre. This was no ordinary heist. This time, the gang were going to abduct the bank's chief executive, Jim Lacey, and his family. The gang would kidnap the unsuspecting family, separate them, and pressure would be put on Jim to save his family's lives by allowing access to the cash. Precision planning would be required to pull this off. Weeks of preparation saw Jim Lacey followed, movements recorded, and an alarm trip executed to see whether guard response times would hamper their efforts. The gang put their plan in motion, and in the very early hours of November 1st, 1993, the gang made their move. Cahill, along with Brian Meehan and five others, would act on the ground, while Trainer remained out of sight. Michael Kavanagh, one of the gang members, would act as a victim. 
His purpose was to receive the cash and oversee its transit out of the building. Cahill, leaving Lacey and Kavanagh alone to go to the bank, had persuaded Jim that his son was shot. Lacey and Kavanagh arrived at the bank, with Lacey informing his senior staff of what had taken place. Lacey instructed the staff to remove a quarter of a million pounds from the vault and to hand it over to Kavanagh. The estimated haul was not near the amount the gang had anticipated, and Kavanagh, knowing there should be more, verbalised his frustration but did not take it any further, making sure not to blow his cover. He took the £233,000 cash and left. The Lacey family would be unharmed in the incident. Such a high-profile robbery would gain instant national attention, and the press reported much larger sums in the vault, to the tune of several million, which aligned with the gang's original estimate. Jim Lacey had engineered minimal loss, despite fearing for his family's safety. An investigation ensued, and Michael Kavanagh was sentenced to 12 years' imprisonment. Although trainer Meehan and Cahill had been questioned, they were not charged. The risk of this particular job outweighed the size of the hall, and by now, Trainer and Gilligan had decided to turn their attention to the drugs trade. In an attempt to establish supply from England to Ireland, Gilligan met with two English suppliers in Brighton. Undercover Scotland Yard detectives were present and had videotaped the meeting. The two English drug dealers were arrested and charged as a result of that meeting, which meant that they would have to go elsewhere. Gilligan, not slowing down, began to put in place his gang. Dennis Meredith, a longtime associate of Gilligan's, would serve as the bagman. He also worked closely with Trainer, and both had criminal contacts in Amsterdam. A trucker by trade, Dinny, as he was known, would prove invaluable with his network of contacts in the transport sector. An associate based in mainland Europe would be a vital cog to the operation to ensure smooth movement of cargo to Ireland. Enter Simon Atta Hussein Khan Rahman. Maintaining a veneer of legitimate businessmen, Rahman was an importer and exporter of various goods while distributing drugs around mainland Europe. His operation was simple. Legitimate products were exported in shipping containers and those containers would be filled up and returned with illegal imports, such as cannabis, sourced from Morocco and Nigeria. Trainer and Gilligan flew to Amsterdam on a couple of occasions to meet with Roman and his associate, Johnny Wildhagen. Wildhagen was Roman's heavy, and was known to be a volatile cocaine addict. Trainer handled the negotiations, and both men were satisfied to cut Trainer and Gilligan a deal. Parting with the cash Cal had loaned to the duo, they secured 170 kilos of hash from their new European suppliers. Once the drugs got into the country, as arranged by Dinny, they would reach a warehouse by truck where they would be picked up by courier. Distribution of the drugs would be handled by Brian Meehan, Paul Ward and Peter Mitchell, who sold to drug dealers, who in turn sold to consumers. The money collected would be used to buy the next shipment, and any profit was split out amongst the men. Raman wanted payment to be made in his local currency, so Gilligan would travel in person, business class, to Amsterdam and change the cash in a nearby bureau de change. On February 17, 1994, their operation encountered its first stumbling block. A truck carrying legitimate truck and computer parts, along with hash, 
was stopped by the Customs National Drug Team for a routine search. The officers called in the North Central Divisional Drug Squad based on Store Street in Dublin city centre. The squad seized most of the hash and allowed the truck to continue, setting up a surveillance team in a bid to catch the criminals on the receiving end of the supply. On the morning of February 21st, a van pulled up with Dinny driving to collect the cargo. The van was under the watch of the drug squad, but also by the gang. The gang decided to back off. They sensed trouble. Gilligan and Cohn knew they needed another more discreet route, outside of Dublin and outside of the gaze of the drug squad. To that end, Dinny recruited a man by the name of John Dunn. Originally a Dublin man, Dunn had moved to County Cork in the south of the country and was working as an operations manager for the Seabridge Shipping Company. Dinny knew that Dunn would be open to an offer of extra cash and the gang would be warned off if customs detected anything suspicious. Gilligan and Trainer decided to personally visit Dunn, arrange terms and a new supply route was established. The gang had now entered the big league and their operation would change the crimescape of Ireland forever. Meanwhile, Martin Cahill, who had loaned money to the drug gang to get them started, was asking for his investment back. The gang were doing well, and Trainer did not want yet to pay Cahill back, so kept him on side by meeting with him frequently and fobbing him off. They would never pay him back. On August 18, 1994, Martin the General Cahill was gunned down while sitting in his car. The IRA claimed responsibility, claiming that Cahill was involved with the UVF or Ulster Volunteer Force, a unionist loyalist paramilitary group which had attempted a mass murder and the blowing up of a pub known to host Republican events in Dublin city centre in May of the same year. The reason behind the murder has never been pinpointed, but with Cahill out of the picture, Gilligan's business was on the rise. A number of articles would emerge in the latter half of that year. Martin Cahill's murder and extramarital affair with his wife's sister would make it to print and to the country's attention. The Father Malloy case and the subsequent disappearance of the Gardafile and its use as a bartering tool to keep Trainer from facing charges after his departure from England was also a topic Veronica reported on. Such expose pieces did not come without embarrassment and anger from the subjects mentioned, and retaliation was imminent. Veronica and her family were about to find out the hard way that the criminal's currency for payback was violence. In October 1994, a handgun bullet was shot through her window at her home. Nobody was injured and nobody would be charged for the incident. Veronica went on about her business and continued to report on criminals, not allowing the attempt to scare her. On January 29, 1995, a story which she wrote on the criminal Jerry Hutch, aka The Monk, and the theft of cash from the Brinks Allied Cash Holding Centre in North Dublin would ruffle feathers. Not only did Veronica report this story, but she also exposed the criminal for stashing the money overseas to avoid any potential taxation. The next day, while home alone, Veronica received a knock to the door. She opened it to a man concealed in a motorcycle helmet. He proceeded to push Veronica to the floor, pointing a gun at her, first to her head and then lowering it, shooting her in the thigh. Veronica underwent surgery in hospital 
and would go on to make a full recovery. The Gardaí investigated the incident. The timing of her story covering the monk put him as the number one suspect, and he was questioned, but vehemently denied his involvement. The guards ruled him out and continued their investigations. Veronica's source was now suspected. He would never be charged and their relationship would remain intact. Veronica would investigate her own shooting, even going so far as delivering letters to the monk, demanding to know if he ordered the violent attack. He denied his involvement and actually granted an interview to Veronica as a result of their contact so he could deny his involvement in the drug trade. The interview would take place at Veronica's home. Next, Veronica would turn her attention to the man who was pulling the strings, John Gilligan. He was proving to be frustratingly elusive to the police and was showing no signs of slowing down. The Sunday World newspaper, a rival to the Sunday Independent, would write about Gilligan, drawing him to the nation's attention. And of course, Gilligan was not pleased. Veronica, not deterred from the previous warning, decided to contact him directly. At some point in September 1995, Veronica sent a letter addressed to John Gilligan requesting an interview to his Jessbrook residence. Not getting a response, Veronica decided to use her trusty doorstepping method and pay Cahill a visit in person. Arriving in the morning, at first to the equestrian centre, Veronica was directed to the private residence by the receptionist on duty. Reaching the gates, she pressed a buzzer, and while the gates opened, nobody would come out to her. She decided to drive up to the house, got out of her car, and approached the door. She knocked. John Gilligan came to the door. Veronica proceeded to introduce herself and explained that she wanted to ask him questions about how he came into his wealth despite having no obvious legitimate source of income. Gilligan already had enough and in a fit of rage lunged at the reporter, physically assaulting her and shouting, if you ever write anything about me again, I'll fucking kill you, your husband, your fucking son, your family, everybody belonging to you, even your fucking neighbours. Get the fuck out of here. Get off my fucking property. Veronica fell to the ground. She got back up and managed to open her car door before being shoved into the driver's seat. Grabbing her by the throat, Gilligan began to rip open her jacket and shirt while searching for a wire. Veronica drove off, badly shaken by what had happened. Although this was not her first time being attacked, this time the warning was explicit and promised future threats against not just her, but her husband and son. The bruises left behind were not just physical. She called a guard of contact and explained what had happened before making her way to her doctor, who diagnosed her as suffering from bruising and shock. She then made her way out to her mother's in floods of tears. Veronica would meet with lawyers for the Sunday Independent the next day to discuss the situation. As they were speaking, John Trainer phoned Veronica, and Veronica, in the company of her counsel, answered the call. Trainer held a calm tone, in an attempt to minimize the damage. He recognized the potential havoc Gilligan's outbursts could bring onto their operation. As they were speaking, John Gilligan, who was standing beside Trainer, came on the line shouting abuse at Veronica. She hung up. He called again five minutes later, 
stating that he and Geraldine were split up and everything was in her name. But his impatience and volatile temper took over, saying, If you do one thing on me, or write about me, I'm going to kidnap your son and ride him, and I'm going to fucking shoot you. I will kill you. Felix McEnroy, the counsel who was overhearing the conversation, immediately instructed Veronica to terminate the call. A third call would later come from Geraldine Gilligan, who, in a calm tone, repeated John's earlier assertions that they were separated and that their assets were in her name. It was clear that the Gilligans were trying to control the narrative with deception. Trainer later warned Veronica to stay away from Gilligan, but Veronica was not going to accept defeat and proceeded to give a statement to the police, as advised by Felix McEnroy. As a result, a detective decided to interview Gilligan, but they could not find him, as he decided to seek refuge in Holland in the hopes that the matter would blow over. Eventually, Gilligan would be taken to Santry Garda Station and was questioned. He denied assaulting her and repeated that he and Geraldine were separated and that she got everything. Gilligan was facing conviction for assault and criminal damage and if successfully convicted would face six months in jail, a time which would cost him and his associates substantial losses. In March 1996, Gilligan would receive a summons to appear at Kilcock District Court in May of the same year. Veronica, in attendance with her husband Graham and friend Michael Sheridan, would be visibly nervous at meeting Gilligan again in person. John was accompanied by his wife Geraldine, despite their claims that they were separated, and a contingent of his mob also attended, busily speaking on their mobile phones. The two parties kept their distance, except for one moment where Geraldine approached Veronica, saying, you won't forget me in a hurry, before returning to John's arm. The hearing was adjourned until June 25th by Judge John Brophy. Gearan was not slowing down in her crusade to expose the drug gang to the public. She discussed with news editor Willie Keeley that she was going to name them all. Trainer, who remained Veronica's main source, was starting to feel the heat, from Veronica herself. Veronica wanted information for a story she was writing and in doing so, revealed to Trainer her intent on writing her expose, naming him in the process. Although it is thought Veronica was not aware as to the extent Trainer was involved with Gilligan, Trainer felt the pressure enough to threaten Veronica with a high court order, preventing any mention of his involvement from being published, which Veronica did not take seriously, threatening to expose him regardless. This fact was not lost on Trainer. Veronica phoned John on June 7, 1996, and told him that she was not satisfied he was a heroin dealer and decided to postpone the story she was going to run. John, for his part, stood down on his threat of legal action, but the pair would later meet on June 10th, and as a result of that meeting, John would swear an affidavit laying out his dealings with Veronica to be able to secure an injunction against the Sunday Independence story about his dealings in the drug trade. A portion of his affidavit reads, I have never dealt in, touched, seen or been involved in anything to do with drugs. I have never invested any money with anybody involved in drugs, and I do not know or have not been in company with any of the people mentioned by Veronica Gearn at the time of writing this. 
On June 14, 1996, Barrister Adrian Hardiman successfully obtained an interim injunction on behalf of Trainer, and lawyers for the Sunday Independent confirmed that a story was not imminent, and on June 24, gave a further statement to say that it would not be printed in the next edition. July 1st was the date set for the next hearing, and Veronica was to submit an affidavit in response. She was due to meet with the lawyers on June 26th. The day before, on June 25th, Veronica was to deal with the Gilligan assault back at Kilcock District Court. Gilligan, without his entourage, showed up with his solicitor Michael Hanahoe. The hearing was brief, and the case was once again adjourned to its final date of July 9th. Wednesday, June 26, 1996, would have been a date etched into Veronica's mind for some time. She was worried about losing her license as a result of having been caught speeding. After all, her car was her mobile office and her ability to get to the heart of the story would have been severely debilitated if she could no longer drive. That morning, Veronica attended Nace District Court facing the speeding charge. She left around 12.30pm, escaping having her license suspended, instead receiving a small fine and suspended sentence. Veronica was elated and proceeded to leave Nace in her red Opal Calibra, travelling back towards Dublin on the Nace dual carriageway. Shortly before 1pm, Veronica reached the junction at Newlands Cross on the outskirts of the city, positioned in the outside lane. It was a sunny day, traffic was heavy and Veronica was stopped at the lights waiting to proceed. She was on her phone, in conversation with a Garda contact. The call, which was being recorded, was interrupted midway. A white motorcycle pulled up to her side of the car, carrying two men wearing white motorcycle helmets and black leather jackets. A handgun was drawn by the carried passenger, aimed at Veronica. The window in the car door smashed, and six rounds were fired, entering Veronica's upper body, killing her instantly. Thank you for listening to the first episode of The Irish Crimes, hosted by me, John Ralph. In part two of Veronica Guerin, Murder of a Crime Journalist, we will be looking at the trials of those suspected with the orchestration of her murder, the aftermath, plus examining the impact of her legacy. We return in January of next year. You can follow us on social media at The Irish Crimes, on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate and subscribe on your chosen platform. For now, thank you for listening. Agus Fold.